Hey, my name is Jordan Sleed, and welcome to the Rediscovering Podcast. I love to write, and I'm doing my best to follow Jesus. So this is just a place for me to share things that I have been writing, thinking about, and most importantly, trying to live as I walk with God and rediscover what holiness is. Thank you so much for joining me. Here's today's episode. Hello, my friends. Thank you guys so much for the encouraging and kind response to this series that we just got done with about waiting. If you don't know what I'm talking about, the first four episodes of this podcast were about waiting on God and how these seasons that we might deem unimportant because they're just transitory, they're caught between something dying and something that we've yet to see come to life, might actually be redeemed as moments of prayer where we deepen our dependence upon God, where we come to know how to be with Him when we don't have answers from Him. Um, And that series was really personal to me. Um, I'm currently in one of those seasons, and I've just done a lot of praying and reflecting on it. And today, what I want to do is start another conversation about something that shows up in my life a lot, a theme that uh, I just feel the Lord is highlighting in different ways Um, and has been all throughout history. That theme or topic is fear, and specifically fear and love, and how those two things are painted as antithetical to one another. In uh, a lot of the New Testament, as we'll read in a second, John says that famous line, perfect love drives out fear, or perfect love casts out fear. So what I want to talk about is fear today, and how it shows up in my life, everybody's life, and the story of Jesus. So where I want to start is this little passage from 1 John 4, verses 15 through 18. Um, This is a letter that John wrote to the early church, and if you haven't read it, it is absolutely beautiful, just a deep reflection on the love of God and love as a whole. It's kind of a master class in how that works. Um, So let me read this section from... Verses 15 through 18. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So yeah, that's 1 John 4. Uh, little section of it, and I'm not going to go verse by verse here or anything. Um, If you want to do that, go ahead, look at the Greek. Uh, There are a lot of cool words in there like love and fear and judgment and perfect and a lot of things to talk about, but what I want to hone in on is that contrast between fear and love and how we live a life of receiving the love of God and how that casts out our systems that are based on fear, how we learn to live in a different way, and that way is love. Um, So many students of the Bible have spent years 
looking through and traversing its dense landscape to find these common threads and connected ideas. And among the many questions that are asked by these smart people is this question. What is the most common command in the Bible? Another question that was really popular even in the rabbinical tradition of Jesus' day is, what is the most important command? He, he gets asked that at one point. But those two questions are huge um, because the way that you and I most likely learn to relate to the Bible is as a religious text, which in our culture means that it must be some form of rule book for getting into the better version of the afterlife. Um, now, that's Western culture I'm talking about. Um, that's where I am. So that's certainly how a lot of people I know and how I primarily think about how to relate to any sort of religious text and then the Bible. I think that's how it's supposed to function. Of course, this is wildly disrespectful to approach the text of a marginalized people group from the ancient Near East and mostly import our own vision of what it's supposed to say and mean from our current culture's understanding of what it should say and mean. Um, Tim Mackey, who started the Bible Project, um, also, if you haven't listened to their podcast, just stop this one and go ahead and listen to theirs and then come back. Um, but Tim Mackey likens the way that we do this to somebody taking a vacation to France, knowing nothing of the language, nothing of the culture, not bothering to do some Wikipedia research, and expecting everybody, once they arrive, to conform to his or her American behavior and language and all that. And sure, there are lots of rules and commands in certain sections of Scripture, but there's also a lot of poetry and a lot more narrative than anything, uh, which kind of leaves us to ask, okay, maybe we're not relating to it the right way. Maybe I'm doing the thing where I show up to a foreign country and just assume, eh, this is supposed to adhere to my needs uh, without me doing much looking into it at all or getting to know it. Right? There's a lot of poetry, a lot of narrative in the Bible, and a lot of it is the honest truth right? It's retelling events historically, barring no explicit detail, but told very thoughtfully. But it's certainly not always giving us, as we think, examples for how to live, uh, rather than it's, it's often painting a picture of how life works when we do it our own way. Uh, the scriptures include and are shaped by the commands God gives, but their ultimate function may actually be that they are a prophetic witness to the story of God humanity, and their culminating point in the life of Jesus, who is the living hope of this kingdom where God rules and we co-rule with him and under him in this new creation that's being brought into being by Jesus' death and resurrection. It's a story that points toward new creation. This story in which we live is what gives the commands relevance, not the other way around. I often think um, I filter everything through the list of 613 commands in the Old Testament. Um, I think those commands are necessary and beautiful, but uh, the the main point, the value of those commands is the story that they are in, the story of God and Israel and how God is planning to redeem the world and bring it back to life. That's where these commands find their relevance, not the other way around. The story's not secondary. It's what we live in. Um, I hope I didn't make anyone mad there. But with all that being said, 
I want to talk about commands, specifically one command. Like we mentioned earlier, um, a lot of people ask, what's the most common command? And a lot of scholars conclude that the most commonly repeated command in the Bible is do not fear, or some variant of that. Um, So I know when I talk about don't fear being a command, I want to tune out. Because that's just not how fear works. It's not how our limbic systems work. It's not how anxiety works. I don't just get to tell it to stop and then move on like nothing happened. And if I do, I might get away with it for a while, but I'm likely repressing things that are going to come out and it's not going to be pretty when it happens. Right? I've been guilty of doing that so often in my life, so often to people that I know and love, like my wife or my close friends or my family, I notice their fear, and I just say, let's move on, quote a Bible verse, and get this over with, without really working through it. And that happens far too often in the church. I think usually when I tell somebody, don't be afraid, I'm saying it because I'm afraid of their fear. That's not the way this command shows up in Scripture. It quite often comes up when a person is already standing in the presence of God, unsure of whether or not they'll survive or, like, what's going to happen. And while it's not directly stated among important lists like the Ten Commandments, um, its spirit, the spirit of that command, do not fear, is riddled throughout the idea of all the commands. Uh, This idea of not fearing, not living like I am the most important and I need to preserve my life out of fear, that spirit is riddled throughout all of it. And this is not... uh, about to turn into me like faking biblical scholarship. I'm not a scholar at all, but I do think that these details and discoveries highlight the fact that fear not is a deeply important command. It is of utmost importance as we learn to understand life in God's kingdom with God in charge. Do not fear being as frequent a command as it is does something to challenge my understanding of why commands exist in the first place, right? Because uh, it doesn't seem like your normal thing that you would list as a command. Initially, I'm sure many of us feel a tension in the air when discussing that word at all, like command. Immediately, I go to all the ones that I'm not following, and fear is my response when I realize I'm not perfect or I'm not trying hard enough. God also invites me to be free of that kind of fear. Um, typically, I think of a command as this like distant to-do list from a distant God. And if I complete that item on the to-do list rightly, uh, and I measure up to this standard, then I can avoid punishment. Um, So my mind inherently sees commands as restrictive things, telling me what not to do so that I can someday enjoy life with God after I do these and get my life in order. And the command, especially in this context of do not fear, could not be more the opposite of that. Rather than uh, seeing a far-off God telling humans what to do so he can put up with them long enough to not kill them, and then he can be with them after that, we're forced by this command and its frequency to look at a God whose deepest desire is to be with his people and for those people to experience the love and freedom he has on offer, whether they are in a good place or not, he's showing up and saying, fear not. The striking reality of this command's frequency is that it seems almost 
always to be paired with either God's presence or the promise that he will be present. In it, there's not this, there's not even a hint of like contempt. There's no sense that God is saying, once you figure this fear thing out, then we'll talk. That's not what do not fear is communicating. Where, um, where our shame and fear causes us to protect ourselves from ending up alone, God calls shame and fear to fall because he is already present. Right? My fear, my shame that shows up is that, oh man, I'm going to be alone. I need to protect myself. I'm going to die. God shows up. He is already present. He's the source of life, and that's where he says, do not fear. It's not when he's distant. It's when he's close. There's a relational security that calls this barrier of fear to fall down. God is love, and fear's absence can only be equated with love's presence in our accepting of his presence. So in light of that, and the connotation that I often have with that word command, I'd like to maybe make that word command synonymous with invitation for the sake of this conversation. Because it's not simply a requirement given to people God is unhappy with, but it's an invitation to look at and be with and be transformed by God. That's what fear not is getting at. It would be one thing for God to look at us and tell us to stop fearing because fear is bad for us, but it's a whole other thing for him to enter the life that I live, acquaint himself with my sufferings, be affected and grieved by my sin and my pain, and give himself away to me in an unfathomable amount of love right there. He calls me to a new relational home base in which fear continually falls off and in its place love grows. That's the journey of being transformed, of being renewed in my mind by the Spirit. He comes in and finds the places where I'm governed by fear and lets those walls slowly and patiently fall. As Peter says, God's patience is salvation It's a patient process of getting rid of fear, getting rid of the ways that I let fear govern my decisions and thinking. And then what he places there is his presence. His presence is love. He places love there to govern the way that I act and think and relate to everybody else. Now, fear shows up in too many ways to name specifically. Recently, I've been more confronted by like the fear of death than I can ever remember being in my life. You know, I grew up um, around the church. I grew up around this faith of, you know, probably more evangelical Christian faith. And I think part of that fear not uh, way of brushing over fear, the way that we often do it, I think part of that made me look at death and go, okay, I'm just going to ignore that because Jesus took care of that. Um, but I've been more confronted by like how scary and how sad it is that death is a reality more than I ever have in my life, um, just recently. And I've encountered that fear and it's weird and I'm still processing it. So we'll probably talk about it more, but fear shows up in ways like that. And fear is, I'll just try to define it in an oversimplification. Fear is a system by which I live that causes me to preserve myself at the expense of others around me 
with an ultimate trust that the future is hopeless. Right? It's it's so tied to hopelessness. That's where my the fear of death feels so paralyzing because it's like, oh, death is the ultimate sign of man, I am completely out of control. It's hopeless. And of course we look to Jesus and go that he's stepped know that he has stepped on death and defeated it. Um, but I, it's a fear that we have to walk through with him. It's not a fear that I can deny and just pretend that it's not there. Um, but it's a hopelessness that is tied to my fear. Uh, we recognize fear when we're in the presence of like a like a lion. Imagine just being like in the wilderness and seeing a lion. Maybe that's happened to you. I've only seen one at the zoo. Like, and that's a good kind of fear, right? You know, you kind of recognize your place and go, okay, I should probably get out of here, uh, or else this thing might maul me. Um, but we, we'll realize fear in those obvious moments where we have no way to defend ourselves. Uh, but we also recognize and experience it when we walk into a room and that person that hurt us is there. Uh, we also feel it when we get to the end of the week and check our bank account and the balance is lower than I thought it was. Uh, maybe I'll feel it when I lose my temper again after I said that I would try to do a better job and oh my goodness, am I hopeless because I'm not doing a better job yet. Fear and shame kind of go hand in hand here. They're the response of Adam and Eve in the garden. The fig leaves that they put over themselves the tree that they hide behind, um, this response of fear or shame, it feels like my shoulders raising and tensing up. I'm sure we can all think of moments like that. They're a lot more common than seeing a lion. They, they happen plenty of times throughout the day where my shoulders raise and tense up and I, I say that I'm not safe, so maybe my response is to say too much or maybe my response is to say nothing at all. But this is what it feels like to be governed by fear. And it's much more inconspicuous than I tend to recognize. It dictates patterns of decision-making in my life. It's a response that teaches me not just when I feel it, but the moments that I feel it lead me to make future decisions based on how I felt when I was afraid, right? It's Fear isn't only in control when I feel it most obviously. It's a response that I have that builds patterns of thinking and decision-making with everyday conversations and work, what I wear, and so on. Um, Jesus touches on this in a small teaching on fear in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food? and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Jesus there is not talking about the noteworthy moments of fear. He's talking about the everyday ways that we let fear dictate our lives. And he's using the birds, right, as this beautiful picture of a life that is not governed by fear. They're not storing up anything for themselves, and God is providing for them. Imagine a life where you could live that freely. Imagine a life where you were so secure in the presence of love that you could live without the need to preserve yourself. I think that's the picture that 
comes out and just slaps me in the face right there. When Jesus calls me to live a life free of anxiety, it doesn't seem like he's just talking about the feeling of it. The work is deeper than just the feeling. It seems like he calls me not to live a life governed ultimately by the need to preserve myself. I am more valuable than the birds who are fed every day. It is perfectly safe for me to live as though I don't need to protect myself and provide myself or provide for myself. The tension that raises my shoulders is not going to lead me to experience abundant life because that fear response is a defense. And if it's a defense, it's a defense against love. The one thing I desire but fear I won't get is what I assure myself I won't experience when I am ruled by fear. Love is not something I'm going to experience when I'm governed by preserving myself because I'm closed off to receiving it. I'm closed off to giving it. I am uh, endlessly spiraling inward. I think that's a loose C.S. Lewis quote. You can look it up. So this call to let perfect love cast out Fear is a practice experienced through relationship with Jesus, who lived completely free of fear. He paints the picture for us. He lived that way. He lived without sin. That means he lived without being dictated by fear. And the call not to fear is the call to be with him. They're one and the same. The way to be human in God's kingdom is to live as though God himself is my father. And even if I die, which all of us will, he will take care of righting that wrong. He will take care of, even unto death, righting my wrongs. I don't have to preserve myself even from death. That's a scary idea, but I think it's beautiful. What Jesus calls the most important command is to love God and to love neighbor. The most common And the most important command, when you put them against each other right here, they reveal this interplay between fear and love, this interior war, right? The most commonly repeated command, fear not. The most important command, love. All throughout the life of Jesus and the story of Israel, this theme of the contrast between fear and love is present. John, in the passage that we read earlier, Uh, speaks about relying on the love of God, kind of echoing John 15, where Jesus says, If you remain in me and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in my love. That's where the absence of fear starts to become a reality, when we practice remaining in the love of God more than we practice remaining in our self-preserving bubble. And this is the beautiful yet terrifying transition that I have to make. Where fear comes up and the Spirit brings it to light for me, I'm invited to acknowledge my helplessness. I can't uproot my own fear. And then I'm invited to ask for the love of God to flood my soul, cleansing me of that fearful way of looking outward. I don't become less fearful by bullying myself into it. This is is how my mind works. I often think this is how I'm going to create change. But that's not how God does commands. He doesn't bully us with them. His kindness leads us to repentance, as Paul says in Romans. The kindness of God is the thing that leads me to experience healing and transformation. The patience of God is salvation. 
It is not an impatient pressing down on myself and going, Jordan, you need to stop being fearful and you need to stop it right now. And just continuing to look down on myself going, really, you're not done with that yet? That's not going to lead to the transformation I desire. God is slow to anger. So I cannot fight fear with my own fear as a response to it. I have to embrace the love of God in the place where I'm so tempted to bully myself and allow love to replace fear. I have to let God love me where I'm so impatient because I'm fearful. And that's that's hard work and it's slow work, but it's good work. And I'm learning that right now. I can't fight fear with my own fearful response to it. But by acknowledging it and then inviting in the love of God to reshape my imagination, my thinking, and the way that I live. So I pray that you and I would learn to respond to our fear, not by attacking it, but by allowing ourselves to be loved by the Father whose love casts out fear. That when we recognize that the Spirit would help us to recognize where fear shows up in everyday life, and He would begin to paint a picture for us of what a life looks like where love replaces fear in every single moment.